Spirals with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the Robohub podcast. Today marks the third of our series of episodes covering the International Conference on Intelligent Robots and Systems, or IROS for short. And we are back with three interviewees who formed part of the conference proceedings today. We kick off with Robert Lösch, a PhD student at TU Freiberg in Germany, who is working on a robot that can drive through mining tunnels. Lösch spoke to Audro about the challenges of creating a robot that can be deployed in mines, including issues such as humidity and wireless communication. Hi, welcome to RoboHub. Hi, my name is Robert from uh, TU Freiburg, Germany. Uh, would you tell me a bit about the work you're presenting today? Um, we build a robot called Julius, and he's equipped with RGB cameras, um, lighters, lighting, and so on, and he's able to drive autonomously through a mine. Mm -hmm. And in our paper here, we presented um, at IROS, we basically present the robot setup and yeah, what we've done, what we've done with the robot. Mm. And so your work, your contribution is figuring out how to drive in the mine? Exactly. My part in the project is a larger project with six PhD students, and my project is the navigating through the mine, exactly. Yeah. And why is this hard? Uh, why? <laughs> um, because, uh, first of all, for example, it's completely dark. Then you have a high humidity, which means that, for example, the water um, condensed, condenses on the, on the glass of your sensors. Then the, uh, the floor is not flat, it's, it's slippery, it's uneven. So you have basically the, both, um, all the bad features from indoor and outdoor yes. environments combined. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and you don't have GPS. Yeah. So what do you use? What is your sensor stack? We use um, an RGBD camera at the front. We have um, a 2D laser scanner yeah, at the front. So the RGBD, that's... That red, means green, blue, depth, red, green, blue, and depth. And that's exactly. like a connect, right? Structured lighting. Exactly. You know, connect okay. vision 2, yeah. And we have one 2D laser scanner at the front and back, respectively. Okay. And it's a 3D laser scanner on top of the robot and also an IMU. Okay. And what role does each of these sensors play? Why do you have the connect in addition to the LiDAR, in addition to the 3D LiDAR? Now right now, we have the connect for... And the accelerometer as well, or the IMU. Yes, um, we use the connect right now for the mapping and the localization in the map. Okay. And the, the LiDAR is basically an one uh, 2D LiDAR. And the 3D LiDAR right now is only used for obstacle detection. But I plan to use it for localization and, and mapping in the future. Okay. And the IMU, for example, is used right now for um, odometry. So do you do some sort of sensor fusion with all of this? or yeah, the, I think the real odometry and IMU data are fused right now, but I will well, want to fuse the IMU with the LiDAR scans. For Say example. it again, the wheel data? The wheel odometry, the exactly. Wheel, okay, the odometry the IMU data. and the IMU. And that's because of slipping and things? or Excellent, with the slipping, because the, the floor is so uneven. Okay, and then tell me about the connect with this. Um, this, this is RGBD camera. Yeah, this is a... Um, yeah, structured light, I think. Yeah, time, of flight, time of flight camera already, because yeah. it's a version 2. And 
Oh, did they change it? Okay. Yeah, for the version two. Okay. So you have usually with the LED spotlights, you see like a ring of, of features in your in your walls, and in the middle it's basically black because it's a huge or a long tunnel. Yep. But um, so you see the walls around you, but exactly, not far exactly, ahead. Exactly. Exactly. But uh, if there are like people or other other um, objects in the in the far, then you can see it usually with the depth camera. Um, but yeah, I would try. Well, I think about trying only to use the depth information without light, because when you change the light or the angle or something, it has a rather large influence on your algorithms. Say it one more time. Um, the, the lighting has a large influence on your algorithms. When you change the light, or some um, areas are lighted more than others, yes. um, it has an influence on your like feature detection with the camera. Yeah, because you set your threshold and then it kind of throws everything off. Gotcha. So, this, uh, how, how did you deal with the humidity problem? With your sensors, or how do your sensors deal with it? Basically, we have two. Or you just uh, run it for not that long. <laughs> now we have two, yeah, two, two, uh, two plans. First, if you go down and it's uh, the the humidity condenses on the sensors, we just wipe it off. Oh yeah. <laughs> or we leave the robot for like one night, and then it has the same temperature and everything, and it should be it equalizes. Should be okay. Yeah. Interesting. Now, why is it important for robots to be able to go in mines? Because yeah, mines are really dangerous environments. Um, basically, uh, you don't have, or if there's an, an incident, you cannot just like go to the next exit and just leave. You have to go to the shaft and then go upstairs, for example. Or I don't know, you have to basically go to a big elevator or something. Yes, exactly. That's what you mean. And yeah, there's also, for example, there's um, some kind of it's called weather, like air conditioning. And you, when there's the fire, all the all the smoke is going in one direction. So if you are there, where the smoke goes, also problematic. Yeah, And yeah, I mean, I mean, mines are basically it depends on the reason in the mine. But I'm not a miner, so I'm not 100 percent sure. But think about caves like these Thokka boys in Thailand some month ago. When they are trapped and so on, you don't know how the if, if something collapses or so. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so yeah, and then you cannot communicate. No. Communication works oh, basically. Oh yeah, that's a big thing line because of, line of sight. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you can't um, like Wi-Fi won't work down there very easily or very far. Yeah, it works because also like roughly just line of sight. Line of sight, basically. So if you have a like a curvy, curvy it uh, environment, it, you have to put like one repeater at every curve. Yeah, bounce it back up and then keep propagating it. Interesting. Uh, so what's the future of your work? Now our future is to improve the navigation, as I already said, and um, in the end. The robot should be able to place IoT infrastructure by itself on the mine and use it to increase um, or improve mapping and navigation capabilities. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Next up, Audro's interview with Ali Marjovi, a postdoc at EPFL in Switzerland. They discussed odor localization, which is important for finding explosives or can be useful for search and rescue. Marjovi told Audro about the properties of odor discretion and how his approach uses a Bayesian approach, including experimental setup and the challenges he's faced when trying to give robots a sense of smell. Hi, welcome to RoboHub. Hi. 
Hi. Would you introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Ali Marjovi. I'm from EPFL Switzerland. I'm a postdoc uh, working on odor source localization. <laughs> Would you tell me about the work you presented today? Yes, uh, so order source localization is a problem um, that has a lot of applications in search and rescue where we actually look for source of a chemical, like a source of explosives or uh, like bodies in search and rescue. Uh, it's very difficult just because when we have a source of chemical, the odor dispersion is very intermittent time variant and it doesn't have a smooth gradient. So uh, what we have actually because done... Because of air dynamics? Or? Exactly, like no, air dynamics, environmental conditions, and uh, how the molecules are... Of an environmental condition. Like, just imagine this room, and you have a leak of some chemicals, and you have a robot, and it wants to find where is the exact source of this chemical, right? So it's really difficult just because it doesn't... I mean, the odor dispersion doesn't have a, a smooth gradient, right? So what we have done in this work is a kind of probabilistic algorithm so it's based on a very famous work called Infotaxis, which works based on Bayesian inference. Uh, so what the robot does is that it actually gets a few samples in the air, and then based on the samples, it actually updates the belief of where the source is. And then it's like a random sampling algorithm. Exactly. But it's not very random because it actually, based on the belief that it has, it tries to always minimize the entropy going towards the positions that. I mean, like a gradient descent with a stochastic element to it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Kind of similar. Kind of similar. Yes. Okay. What you're saying in terms of entropy? Tell me a bit about that. Yeah. So um, when. When so we talk, yeah. entropy in this sense is like odor dispersal, like how far it's spread out and you try to localize mm, it to a source? Uh, somehow, yes, somehow no. But because we actually calculate the entropy on the probability, uh, on a probability map, which actually tells us where the source is. Okay. Oh. So we actually generate this probability map. Does it, you have to know an environment first? You no, you don't need to know the environment. You need to have a kind of uh, model for how the odor is dispersed in the environment, which actually is known, basically. Because if you have a kind of source of a uh, chemical and you have a wind and you know what is the wind and you know almost what is the you release rate. constant wind or? Exactly, constant wind for this work. So yes. Otherwise, it's really difficult. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we are simplifying that part. So we have a constant wind, laminar, and um, yeah, we, we know What's that laminar? laminar means directly going to forwards, ah, not okay. having turbulences. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and then the robot actually chooses based on this uh, belief. The model exactly. It actually chooses what is the best position to go next that minimizes the entropy of my belief. Mm -hmm. So you're information seeking. Exactly. Yes. And then we have. Does this ever mean moving away? from the source? No, it's it actually moving towards it. basically moving towards the source. Yes. But not necessarily. But yes, most of the time the, the robot moves towards the source. But what is important is not where the robot moves, is actually what is the where is exactly the source. Of course. So if I understand correctly, you get the information from your sensor that says we pick up this level of some chemical. And then you're going to predict where it is with some confidence, and then you increase your confidence over time. Where exactly. Why is it important to predict where it is rather than the direction it is relative to you? Both of them are important, but in this algorithm we are doing, 
is actually the second one. So we have other yeah. algorithms like bio-inspired algorithms or um, some other kind of algorithms that are like gradient descent. We yes. usually like direct What's the robot. What's the disadvantage of using that kind of thing, that kind of approach? Uh, well, it's very you don't predict, but you just keep getting closer and closer. Well, the disadvantage of this kind of probabilistic algorithm that they actually behave very similar is that they are computationally very heavy. Which one? This version. This one, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we have, in every iteration, we have to actually generate the probability map. We have to do all the inferences. It's really heavy. I imagine. But uh, we have shown that actually compared to some uh, other methods, it, it, it has better performance. Gotcha. And tell me what your experiment looks like. Yeah, you can actually see it here. I don't know. Your but it is an audio podcast. Exactly. Okay. So the wind so, tunnel. Yeah, exactly. We have a wind tunnel. We generate laminar flow. We have a source of chemical, which can be ethanol or acetone. Mm-hmm. And we we actually uh, test this uh, the performance of this algorithm on different environmental conditions in terms of wind speed, source release rate, and the position of the source. We do this like uh, for each one of these setups like a hundred times, and then we see what is the performance basically. Okay, and what did you find? Well, we found uh, that, for example, how is the first of all um, if the algorithm is functional or not, which we actually got it. I figured out that it's really better than many uh, similar methods. The other thing is that we actually studied what is the uh, environmental effects on the performance of this algorithm. For example, we figured out that if the wind, if the wind is really high, the algorithm has much better success rate than than when the wind is really like uh, low speed. Um, and I think it's because like the dispersion of the ga- chemical gases in the environment really changes based on the wind. If you have higher wind, usually the plume that is generated from the source is very narrow. But when you don't have this really uh, high speed wind, yeah, it's much more dispersed and more like diffusion like rather than like being like a plume. Now, I don't really know much about robot smells, but. Um, how does it, so if you're smelling specific chemicals, you're basically smelling them being released into the air and then particles of that being in the air? How would it work, say I wanted them to smell for lemon in the air or some like non-chemical, yeah. something that's not degrading and evaporating effect? Because what you're doing, it's, it's evaporating chemicals, really. That's true, it? that's true. Uh, How would you make it smell for anything? Uh, well, <laughs> this is a very tough question to me. Uh, well, uh, I would actually study it in this thing that uh, we can target categories of a smell. Like you said, lemon. Lemon is organic. We have sensors that are VOC. We call them uh, VOC, which are for organic compounds. So we have sensors that are really sensitive for a range of chemicals. So it would work for lemon, but definitely it would not work for, I don't know, some other some other things, right? Exactly. So depend. I mean, the algorithm we develop, I believe that is very general. It's based on Bayesian inference. It would work, but the sensing part or the sensor that you want to use is different for different chemicals. Whatever you're trying to find. Exactly. And what's the future of this work? Well, I really uh, think uh, that in the future we can really replace a lot of. like uh, operational uh, missions with robots and one of the most important ones is a search and rescue when we really we, when we have a disaster we want to find bodies like in in some fields we can send robots uh, or in in the airports we can have robots who are monitoring the security of the 
of the environment by just having some sensors that are looking for explosives, for example. Definitely. And then, so what are your next steps in this line of work? Um, well, what we have done here in terms of uh, in terms of experiments, we are using a wind tunnel and we are using a 3D traversing system. I would like to use uh, like quadrators, and we want to actually do the same thing in the real world, in the outdoor environments. Very good. Thank you. Thank you very much. And in the final interview in today's episode, Sophia Sucker from the Institute for Intelligent Systems and Robotics at ETH Zurich spoke to Audro about a haptic pair of tweezers. She discussed how it works, how this can be used to control other devices, and the future direction of her research. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Hi. Would you introduce yourself? Uh, yes, I'm Sophia Sacre, a PhD student from Isier in uh, Sorbonne University in Paris. Um, I'm working uh, with a team named uh, Interaction in this uh, lab. Gotcha. And what is the work that you presented here at IROS? Uh, the, the title of my paper was uh, An Ungranted Master Device for Telemicroassembly. And uh, we presented um, our setup for telemicroassembly, and uh, most of the work was done on um, the master device. Uh, it's a new haptic tweezer. It looks like a real tweezer, but inside we have a motor which activated the closing and the opening of the branches. We add some sensors, and all the electronic is embedded. Furthermore, we just have one single wire, which is a USB cable. Hmm. Why do we need an electronic? haptic tweezer? Uh, without that, it could be a great idea to propose that for um, in medicine case or manufacturing when the um, craftsmen, for example, have to uh, manipulate very small pieces like in watchmaker or to make electronic circuits, for example. And uh, so first we wanted to propose them this tool as a co-manipulator to help them. Mm -hmm. Like the motor can... Um, hold a pieces without um, needed forced pressure from the human. So the human can uh, rest a little and uh, we can avoid maybe uh, some trouble like muscul uh, musculoskeletal uh, ah. trouble. And then uh, we thought that it can be a, a good idea to propose it as a master device in a teleoperation chain. Mm -hmm. um, so we can um, manipulate pieces and maybe as propose them to uh, miniaturize the pieces and go uh, and uh, have to assemble uh, very micro pieces. Ah, okay. And what does the user interface look like? It's uh, something people stick their two fingers into? How, how do I feel what the tweezer is feeling? Um, so thanks to the motor and all the mechanism, um, the branches... So okay. the tool, you can use it as a real tweezer. Okay, you hold it in your hand, it's handheld, yep. and uh, you have to uh, press oh. it on your, uh, between your finger, your thumb and your, uh, your finger. Yeah, your okay. forefinger, yeah. pointer finger. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And so um, when uh, the robot holds an object, yes. the uh, tweezer uh, will block the closing of the tweezer, so you oh. can feel the force under your finger. Okay. As with a real tweezer, with a real uh, yes, pieces. not true. And does it do opening as well? 
So yeah. can I feel that the tweezers are being opened? Yes. Um, thanks to the motor, we can act. Uh, we can use it um, by itself. Yes. Like, we don't need to press to uh, open and close. So you can feel it when you uh, you hold it in your hand. You can feel the forces when it's open. Very cool. Okay. Uh, what's the future? of this work or your research direction? Um, currently, I'm working on uh, the haptic feedback, uh, first in simulator. Uh, simulator is interesting, for example, in learning process for a surgeon or to learn a complicated task. And then the next step will be to uh, do it either with a real robot and have a bilateral uh, coupling. That means that uh, we can control the robot and we have the force feedback from the robot in the hand of the user. Mm. And then the next step after that will be a real user test with a real craftsman, for example. Gotcha. Thank you. You're welcome. And that's it for today, but we're still far from finished with the amazing stuff we got from Iros. So don't worry, we'll be back to hear more from Iros very soon. In the meantime, feel free to visit robohub.org forward slash podcast, where you'll find all our past episodes, as well as more information about how you can support us in future through our Patreon campaign. This allows us to collect small regular donations from listeners, primarily to send some of our interviewers to the biggest robotics conferences around, such as IROS. So if you think you might be able to chip in just a few dollars a month to support our podcast, please check out our campaign at robohub.org forward slash podcast. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Iros with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>